So here's where we're at in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is recounting the history of Israel. And the reason why he's recounting the history, because if we're not familiar with our history, we are... Well, yes, history. Good job. We're doomed to repeat it. We're destined to repeat it. We're going to make the same exact mistakes that are going to go on. And so, here is Moses. They're not far from crossing over into the land, finally, after 40 years. And he is prepping them mentally to be able to walk in. Now, what we dealt with was his reaccounting of the spies who came back, gave the bad report, led the majority of the people astray. Only Joshua and Caleb, Moses, Aaron were the different people uh, in that situation because they fully trusted the Lord in it. And now we come to a, a troubling part. But verse 40 of chapter 1. But as for you, turn around and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Your children are going to inherit this land, but you will not stop where you are, turn around immediately, and head away. You can no longer go forward. Do not collect $200. Do not pass go kind of idea. Now, let's, let, and, and Mitch, if you don't mind, we are going to need the map. Is that cool? Okay. So let's throw it up. Let's throw up the big one here. Um, uh, the other one, I'm sorry. That is the big one. I apologize. I don't know what I'm talking about. So, here they stand over in this area, okay? You've got Moab up here. You've got Edom down here. And, and just for a frame of reference where we might get today in chapter 2 if, if we press on, above Moab is, is the Ammonites, Ammon, okay? It's important for us to see what's going to happen there. But here's one thing I want you to get. Sea of Galilee, Jordan River flows down into the Dead Sea or also what's known as the Salt Sea. Everybody with me so far? And then you have what is called here the Arabah. So from this point right here of Ezion Geber all the way up to the bottom of the Dead Sea, this is known as the Arabah, okay? And it's a valley that's there that has a river that runs through it. Then it pours out into the Aquabah, which later comes down here into what? What's down here? The Red Sea, okay? So we're getting kind of a little bit more familiar with our geography that's going on. Now, with all this in mind, some things I want you to understand is there are different various rivers that flow out of this in certain directions. And we're going to look at like the Brook of Zared today and things like that. So just to give you a, a mental picture of geography of what's going on there. So they are told instead to turn around and head in this direction. Go back into the wilderness. Go back through what you spent the days coming through, but now because of your unbelief, you're going to reside there. Now, when we get paddled by the Lord, we make a colossal mistake. We try to obey him. Okay? Now get this. We try to obey our way out of the consequences of our sin and back into his favor and blessing. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Watch what happens. Verse 41. Then you said to me, we've sinned against the Lord. We will indeed go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. Everybody see commanded, E-D? That was the previous command. This is the before you told me no command, right? 
We will go do it now because we don't want that end. And every man of you girded on his weapons for war, and here it is, watch this language, and regarded it as easy to go up into the hill country. Now, this concept isn't any different from how we operate today, okay? Imagine the idea of you telling your child, clean your room, okay? Now, eventually the child's going to have to clean their room, just like the children of Israel are going to have to go into this promised land and go to war and defeat these people in order to inherit it. But when that child tells you no, things change, don't they? And depending on how you parent, they change real quick, okay? It either changes to, uh, now, honey, I know you didn't mean that. Now, go do what I told you, too. You ain't got a clue who you're dealing with. You're getting ready to get lit up, right? Those are the polar extremes that are going on there. And hopefully, all of you are the lit up kind. Eli, lit up kind. Light that child up. Your wife is carrying sin. That's what she's carrying, okay? It's a little cute bundle of sin. That's exactly what that child is. So it's important that you, because, man, we're, just, we're not painting any pictures. That's what the child is, okay? It's important to know, you know? I, I had that mentality. My wife's carrying Nathaniel. It's like, yeah, cute, beautiful, wonderful, awesome, sin. That's what that child is. And kid sins every day. Trust me, we got to deal with it. But notice, oh, well, I didn't mean that. Well, I don't, since I don't want the consequences, since I don't want to be spanked, since I don't want to be grounded, since we put in a corner, whatever it is, the punishment that you have for me, I will now go back and do what I was originally told in order to avoid what was going to happen. Now stop for a second. The children of Israel know that there's going to be consequences for their disobedience. God's always very clear about the situation. He doesn't mince words about those types of things. Does it ever work with you when your child's like, okay, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go clean my room, when they know how you were going to punish them? Do you let that go? Should you? Should you let it go? No. You should do what, what, what you say you'll do. And notice, the landscape has changed for them. Notice that the thinking is, oh, my bad. God really meant what he said. I mean, it's not like we don't have a track record that he always meant what he said. But now, because we don't want this to happen, we're going to go, and you thought it was easy to go up. Which means when they were going to fight, how were they going to fight? In their own strength. Does everybody see how their thinking is messed up at the base level? We... we we can just go up there and conquer this if God said this is what we're supposed to do. Doesn't matter if he goes with us or not. So now, verse 42, and the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up nor fight. Now pause, that is a loving parent, right? Let me, let me put it down in Jeremy's version. Y'all getting ready to do something stupid, stop it, right? That's the idea. You're getting ready to tread on ground and you are going to get run over the coals, raked over the coals, if you try to move forward without me. Do not go there. Don't try to obey now what you should have obeyed before. The commandment no longer stands for you. You are now in the situation of consequence, not commandment. Does that make sense? So notice, do not go up, for I am not among you. Otherwise, you will be defeated. In fact, the word there actually means smitten before your enemies. You're going to get smoked is the idea if you try to go up now without the Lord. Here's the reason why. Who's the fighter here? God. 
God is the warrior God. He is the one that issues the battle commands. He's the one who makes it happen. He is the one that puts fear in people's hearts. He's the one that secures the victory. Him and him alone. Nobody else does it. We need to be increasingly convinced of that truth. And so notice, moving on here, uh, you'll be defeated for your means. Verse 43, so I spoke to you. But here's the problem. You would not what? There it is. I told you the word of God. I told you exactly what God said. But you don't have the capacity to hear it. You wouldn't listen to me. Instead, you what? Oh, man. Instead of listening to God's word, twice now, go in, conquer the land, I'll give it to you. No, we're not going to do that. Okay, you're going to have to wander in the wilderness. Hey, you know what? Let's go conquer that land. All of a sudden, it's looking real good, and those people don't look as tall. Those cities look less fortified than they did before. Before, they were fortified up into heaven, but now they just kind of look normal. Let's go get those now. Nope, don't go up. God's not with you. In fact, when you read the parallel account in Numbers that talks about this actual event taking place, it says that Moses stayed behind and the Ark of the Covenant stayed behind. It didn't go with them. Now, why would that matter? God's omnipresent. Won't he, anywhere? Won't he be anywhere? Yes, but the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol to everybody. God is with us. And by carrying this into battle, we are saying that the presence of God is fighting for us. Now, let's say that you had to go to war. Is your first thought to put poles through the rings of a gold chest and carry it into war? You're thinking ammo and artillery. You're thinking strategies and battle plans. Everybody see how God's way is different. When God fights for you, the most alarming thing you can have for your enemy is his presence on your life. See, this, this has got a lot of ramifications for spiritual warfare that we deal with. Satan loves to implant ideas in the mind to lead us astray, to get us off the path. The most important thing you can do is have a clear communion with the God of glory. That's what keeps us from succumbing to defeat, being open to that. And so moving on here, he says, you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord. Notice that, what he said, and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. The situation had changed. We're going to go fight with no strength and no commander. Is that going to work out well? No. So it says here, verse 44, the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and crushed you from Seir to Hormah. Now, here's what's interesting about this. If you, if you were to sit down with your Bible and you said, okay, Deuteronomy is recounting some historical events that took place with the first generation. And so you're going to go back into numbers and you're going to research the stuff that went on with the first generation. You'll find out that actually what's brought up constantly is the Canaanites and the Amalekites, not the Amorites. It's very interesting. Is there a contradiction going on? There is not because the land contained all of those people in there. There just happens to be an emphasis on one as opposed to the other. Now, the crazy thing is, is it doesn't just talk about they got defeated or they ran into battle and they got scared and turned around and ran back. No, 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 no. They got paddled. That's the idea of bees chasing you. Anybody ever had a bee chase you? Okay, everybody has. Is that like a thing up here, I guess? We're trying to get that honey, and maybe, I don't know. But a bee chasing you, and you run, don't you? You run like your life depended on it, because bee stings are not a good time, right? Are they a good time for some people? Okay, it's making sure. Crowd participation, it's okay. 
Bee stings are not a good time. Now notice that there are two destination markers that it gives you. From seer to horma. Anytime that you see seer here, notice that it is S-E-I-R. Anytime that you see that, seer is the region that is known as Edom. Okay, E-D-O-M. So when we look back here at our map, and we see Edom over here, east side, down south from Moab, down south from where the Dead Sea is, that region right there. They got chased all the way back. Now, Hormah is considered the region that's probably right along the edge here uh, of the Dead Sea, but it was also what was known as the Judean Mountains. Now, I don't know exactly where that is, and if you've ever experienced trying to map out geography with biblical maps, you know the frustration that comes with that to where you want to pull your eyebrows out, okay? That's always rough. For some reason, the maps can never fully tell you everything that you want to know about that. And so what happens is, is they chase them. The distance that they're talking about is 50 miles. Can you imagine running into battle without the Lord, trying to avoid the consequences that he's already dished out to you in response to your unbelief in sin. And instead, you not only lose people, people are not just killed in battle, but you're having to run for 50 miles until you can stop. You talk about chase them away from the land. Completely did. And so it says here, verse 45, then you returned and you wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice, nor give ear to you. Does everybody see that there's a double emphasis there? He wouldn't listen to you. He wouldn't even lend his ear your way. Anytime that you see a double emphasis like that going on, it should really be an exclamation point on what you're reading. This is how severe the situation is. In other words, God won't pay you any attention now. You can cry out and weep to him all day long, but you're getting the consequences for your actions, for your unbelief. Doesn't it seem kind of silly that they could have avoided this? I mean, all they had to do was just, what's God told us to do? Okay, he's God, I'm not, we'll follow him. But man, I tell you this, and this is probably the biggest, the biggest uh, sin that I struggle with in my life. Pride has a way of strangling off the blood circulation to your brain, doesn't it? We just Sometimes we get so prideful about situations, we just don't think clearly about, oh yeah, that's what God said. And it, for some reason, just leaves us in a moment's notice. It's, it's insane. So notice verse 46. So you remained in Kadesh many days, the days that you spent there. Kadesh Barnea. Now if you were to take your Bible and look back at verse 19 of chapter 1, you will see there, then we set out from Horeb. What's Horeb? Do we remember? Remember? Sinai, Mount Sinai. And we went through all that great and terrible wilderness, which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites. Notice that, that we just dealt with. Just as the Lord our God had commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And if you remember, with Kadesh Barnea, we're dealing with an actual oasis there that had some pasture land. Everybody see Kadesh Barnea here? Everybody see it off to the left? Yes? We good? Bueller? Bueller? Do we see it? Okay. Then I get the Bueller Bueller joke right there. There you go. There it is, Kadesh Barnea right there. So they go back there to stand. Now, what's amazing is, is where we started this from was the whole idea of, oh my gosh, our children are going to get killed if we go over into this land. No, you're actually going to die for your disobedience and your children will be the ones who inherit this land. And look back at verse 40. 
Um, uh, no, that's not it. I apologize. Well, it's the same idea, verse 40. But as for you, turn around and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. In other words, go southeast on a path. What you find is, is that Kadesh Barnea ends up being the place where they are staying for quite some days. And it seems to be what happened was, is they were licking their wounds. Now, what's odd is if you were looking at the parallel account between Deuteronomy and Numbers, and I think it's around Numbers chapter 20 where this starts, there is no record really of the details of what went on in those 40 years of wilderness wandering. There's not really anything that we're given to help us out there. It's all a big question mark as far as where, where they went, how they wandered. They were just supposed to go towards the Red Sea, and that's about it. And from some estimations of what it was, was from Kadesh Barnea to the, to the tip of where they could get into the Red Sea, in about two weeks' time, they could cover that ground, no problem. So if that's the direction they were going to try to get there, they're going in that direction. The, the goal isn't to arrive at the Red Sea. The goal is to arrive and just circle around with no purpose going on until everybody finally dies so that they can move forward. Now, here's what's amazing about this before we move into chapter 2. This entire event is a picture of the Christian life. It's very important that we get this. We were all in bondage at some point to sin. Egypt serves as a type of that bondage. We're in slavery. It's increasingly hard and difficult, and we're getting nowhere. We're just existing. We're not really living. And then, when it comes time for death to take people, when we know that death is the certain end for that, we are called on to apply the blood. Now, the great thing is, is that the blood, the lamb, has been provided for us. The way that we apply it is by believing. Just as they applied it to the doorpost, so we apply the blood to us when we believe in Christ. In doing so, that death passes over you and I, and we are set free in order to live. Now, this is very important to get, and this rids our minds of the notion that there are some sort of works that need to take place in order for us to really, truly, authentically be saved, okay? And the idea is, is it wasn't until they got out of Egypt and into the wilderness going towards Sinai that they ever received any instruction for living. Does everybody see that? You don't receive your instruction for living until after the blood's been applied. Notice they didn't receive instruction for living, and if they followed it, that maybe God would be good enough to save them. Notice it's not that. It's not works up there. It's not, well, just do this one little work, and then you'll be saved. No, it's, it's receive the blood that's been provided for you, and then receive instruction later about how to live life. Mutually exclusive events. After they've received instruction about how to live, the question is, will you live that way? Will you trust that God knows better about what he's orchestrated for your life? Do you believe that his truth is really true? And now we see here the damaging consequences of what it is to operate in unbelief. That is no inheritance. That is wandering around in the wilderness. That is not having really any purpose. Because let's be honest, if you're not abiding by the truth, are you really living for anything? Not really. It's a scary place to be. So does everybody see how that's a type? And the antitype in Scripture is the Christian life and the blood applied by Christ. Does anybody have any questions on that? It's a really important concept to see. Everybody's good? Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. Then 
We turned and set out for the wilderness, by the way to the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me and circled Mount Seir, that's Edom, for many days. So they circled one of the mountains down there of Seir. I don't think that Seir is talking about they circled the whole country of Edom. That's not the idea. Remember, sometimes that these words that are these, these names of these places that are brought up can mean a specific mountain. It can mean a specific person. But sometimes just as one person's name deals with a nation, Jacob, Israel, are we talking about Israel in the last chapters of Genesis? Or are we talking about Israel in the book of Malachi when they're a full-blown nation? You see what I'm saying? Sometimes you have to use discernment to decide some of that stuff. Notice that after they've licked their wounds and started to recover from being defeated in this battle, they can now finally move into the wilderness. And notice this word circled. Everybody see it in verse 1, circled? It means to turn about, to turn aside, and to turn backwards. Does it sound like it has much direction? This is the consequences of unbelief for these people. It says here, Verse 2, and the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn north. Well, let's all think for just one second. If they're at Kadesh Barnea, they lick their wounds, and they're supposed to head out towards the Red Sea, as chapter 1, verse 40 tells us, and they finally do that at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. Which direction are they going? They're going south. That's the direction they're heading. And whatever went on out there and however many loop-de-loops was or whatever that they had to make around the same old stuff, they're just waiting for bodies to die. At some point, God says, okay, Moses, turn around, head north, keep going, which means they're close to the end. Now, let's remember if we came from last week, who was the last person to die before they could cross over into the land? Moses is. So notice, along the way, you're going to lose Miriam. You're going to lose Aaron. Those are people that you're going to lose. You're going to lose all your men of war, it speaks of, on the way up here, and he will be the last one to die after he has given this farewell address. So it says here, verse 3, you have circled this mountain long enough, now turn north and command the people saying, now watch this, you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir. Now remember, Seir is Edom. They will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Now pause. Why would they be afraid of Israel? I mean, think about the time span. What we just saw happen between the beginning of verse 2 and walking into about, or sorry, the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, and walking into about chapter 2, verse 3, some 38, 40 years has passed. That time just went like that. So that's a long period of time. Anybody afraid of what you were afraid of 40 years ago? Maybe not. You see what I'm saying? Did something happen 40 years ago that left such an impression upon you that it still affects the way that you live your life today? You married Jim 40 years ago? Well, anybody got a good example? <laughs> but, but you get the idea. This had to be something that so affected them that when the children of Israel started coming and they saw them from afar, fear paralyzed them. It grabbed them. Do you think they heard about what God did to Pharaoh? You think that you think that went around the National Enquirer and the TMZ channels in that day? I'm pretty sure it made the circuit. I'm pretty sure that everybody was in the know. This is the Lord who, when Pharaoh was coming to kill them, swept him away in the sea. Anybody ever Googled that event in, in uh, Google Pictures? 
uh, that event, you can actually see there are, there are chariot wheels that are on the ocean floor there where it happened. And they have crustaceans that have grown off of them and all kinds of things like that. Yeah, it's really interesting to see. They're all turned up sideways. Some of them are buried halfway. Very interesting stuff. Google it sometimes. It's very interesting. It's very real. Very real. Ah, that was just, that was just, you know. Yeah, it's like the ark landing on Mount Ararat, right? It's a big mountain range, but it doesn't change the fact that the, the I can't remember, is it Saudi Arabian government that's there? It's a no-fly zone. They won't let anybody fly over it. Was it Turkey? Yeah, they won't let anybody fly over it right now. In fact, they haven't for years and years and years. Uh, there was one pilot in World War II who said that when he flew over it, he looked down and he saw something that looked like the biggest boat he'd ever seen in his life. It looked like a barge. It was huge. And it was broken in two, and half of it was in ice because it snows and ices on the mountain up there uh, nine months out of the year. So you could only see it sometimes during three months. I've actually seen an interview with a guy who, from the 80s, and I want to say he was about 86 when he gave the interview. And he said, yeah, when I was a seven-year-old little boy, my father took me up there on Mount, Mount Ararat, and I've actually stood on the deck of the ark on the very top of it. My father boosted me up there, and we, we made our way up to get to it. So that stuff's there. I'm, I'm totally convinced that God doesn't want us to have it. Because if we had it, we would worship Noah's ark before we would worship Yahweh God. It's tangible. It's physical. It's, it's, you can touch it, see it, smell it. We're, we're so naturalistic in that. It's just like when God says, don't make any graven images, either anything in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. Why is that? Because his word is to be the central focus of why we worship what we worship, not some image. It's like when we all picture Jesus. How do we picture him? You know, white skin, didn't have that. Blue eyes, beat out Sassoon hair, right? Paul Mitchell's been over at his house and worked on him or whatever. He's got flowing robes, usually a halo or something, and he's doing something like this, and he's glowing, and he didn't look like that. He probably looked like Osama bin Laden, is actually what he probably looked like. Brown skin, unkept hair, he probably had dreadlocks. I mean, nobody's shampooing back then, you know? Might not have had the greatest hygiene as far as teeth was concerned. There was nothing about him that we should notice. So it's a lot of, lot of stereotypes sometimes we throw in that direction. Sometimes pictures of Jesus do more damage to our thinking than good. Uh, unless you got a Polaroid of it, then you're right on. So, uh, that's a joke. So, no, so live in Seir, they will be afraid of you, so be very careful, okay? Now, watch this. Verse 5, do not provoke them, okay? Clear instructions. You are coming across these people whom you're related to. Do not provoke them, and here's the reason why. For, here's the explanation, I will not give you any of their land even as little as a footstep, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And anytime you see the word possession in Deuteronomy, you're safe to translate it as what? Inheritance. That plot of land that we see right up there on the right-hand side, that is Esau's inheritance of the land. That's his. God gave it to him. Now, does anybody remember why God gives real estate to certain people? Why is he in the real estate business? Do we remember? Let's look at it real quick. Everybody put your little Bible strings or whatever there, your handout, sermon notes, whatever. Turn back to, to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is just ripe with stuff. I'm sorry, not Hebrews. Never mind. Uh, Acts, forgive me. The book of Acts is ripe with stuff. It is. Would you agree? See, I can say that about any book of the Bible. I'm clear. I'm good. Acts 
Uh, 17, I'm sorry. Chapter 17. Look at verse 24. We'll just hit this real quick. I don't want to belabor it too much, but I want you to see. Paul knows something about how God operates that sometimes we forget, and it's real good to keep on our minds. Really puts the world in perspective. Really puts evangelism in perspective. Verse 24 of chapter 17. He's talking to uh, the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers and all the smart guys in Athens. And he says here, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God has people born and God has people live in the places they live and the times that they are for one reason and one reason only. Look at verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The reason why Esau and Edom was where they were was for one reason. That is the maximum opportunity that those people will have to seek God. Now, do we know what all that looks like and the intricacies of how he works in their life? That's not really recorded in the Old Testament because the focus is on Israel, not Edom. But does that change the fact that what God tells us about why he puts them there, isn't it still true? Doesn't change that fact at all, does it? So it's important to see that. God places people where he places them so that they would seek him. He wants people to seek him and to know him. Yes, sir. Yeah, the brother of Jacob. So Jacob and Esau? Yeah, so... No, no, we haven't finished it yet. Uh, whenever, whenever Israel is marching up through there, God's telling them they're going to be afraid of you. Don't provoke them. But he uses a very interesting phrase in chapter 2, uh, verse 4, and command the people, command Israel, saying, you will pass through the territory of your brothers. Very important. And so he says here, they will be afraid of you, so be very careful, do not provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land, even as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money, so that you may eat, and you shall also purchase water for them with money, so that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, you have not lacked a thing. Now, well, Esau wasn't with these people because Esau is not the chosen child of promise. He is not the one through which Yahweh would bring the seed through. And when we get into this whole, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? The only reason is, is because he wanted the seed to come through Jacob. Jacob was a scoundrel. Jacob was a guy that if he showed up to church, we would put the shady police on him. We would. We would make sure that somebody that is concealing carry would be around him at all times because he's going to steal something, swindle somebody. He was, he was a mess. But so was Esau. There was no reason why one should have been chosen 
over the other. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, it says, before the boys were ever born, whether they'd done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob over Esau. Now, I'm going to go ahead and burst the balloon here. God did not choose Jacob to go to heaven and Esau go to hell. That's not what that passage is saying whatsoever. What it's saying is, is that Jacob was the chosen vehicle of which the line of the fulfillment of promise would come through. That's the concern. The concern is, how will God's promises get fulfilled to Israel? Well, notice how God works in history. He decides to choose this line of Isaac instead of Ishmael. He decides to choose this line of Jacob and not Esau. God decides how he wants his promise to come to be. He can choose the channel of which that is fulfilled. That's how he chooses to work. And so when we talk about that Israel is elect, or they are the chosen ones of God, chosen for what? To go to heaven when they die? Not everybody as part of Israel went to heaven when they die. It's not even about that. It's about the whole idea of bringing forth the fulfillment of God's promise in history. It is real life flesh and blood carrying out divine instruction is the idea. So notice the reason why they pass through here is because they're related. God has blessed them with this land and said, don't touch it. It belongs to Esau's line. In fact, when you get there, you don't demand anything from them. You don't walk in like barbarians and tyrants and say, I'm going to start knocking heads like watermelons unless you give me some food and something to drink. He doesn't do that at all. He says, pay for what you want. Fair trade. Treat them with respect. Show them by your rightful and honest dealings with them that you are genuine and you're not looking to dupe them, overthrow them. You're just here to be honest. Does everybody see how that works? Everybody good? Okay. So notice, that's an important point. Then he moves on, verse 7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. His love and provision have abounded to them even while they're serving out the consequences for their disobedience for 40 years. Do you realize in 40 years nobody had to stop at the Skechers store? Do you guys notice that? Never. They never had to, man, we got to find a McDonald's or something. I'm dying out here. They never had to do that. They were never like, well, well where's the you know, latest, uh, I mean, I don't know, wherever you buy clothes at. We got to go there. They weren't looking for the farm and fleet while we're there in the wilderness. They didn't need that stuff. God kept their sandals as fresh as could be. The clothes didn't tear up and wear out. They never lacked for anything to fill their bellies. What's that? His vision was still clear. He even took the time to still lead them. We think it was hard for Moses. Man, it would have been harder for Moses if God wasn't out there. If he was like, you know what? I did lead you by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, but y'all made me so mad. I'm just not going to do that anymore. Moses, take the wheel. He doesn't do that. I'm sure the only thing that kept Moses going with these people was the fact that the presence of the Lord was always before him leading him. Important stuff. So notice, he still blesses them these 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. Verse 8. So we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road. Now pause. Where is the Arabah? Remember, it flows down from the Dead Sea to the Gulf of Aquaba. We went on past all of that, and they're going up even further. Everybody got that? Okay. So look what it says. They're going north. That's the direction. Uh, let's see here. To the Arabah Road, away from Elath and from Ezion Geber. Now, does everybody see Ezion Geber there down at the bottom, the top of the Gulf of Aquabah? If you're familiar with uh, Solomon, and when he got the opportunity to begin building the temple, 
The whole idea was is he actually had a lot of the materials exported in through that, and he set up a major port there in Ezion Gibber so they could transport the rest of the materials up to Jerusalem in order to start the building of the temple. That was the port that he used to get all of his goods. And so it says here, and we turn and pass through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. Now Moab, notice, right up there on the top, more to the east of the Dead Sea. There you go. Thank you, thank you cursor guy. Appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, it says here, uh, then the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, as an inheritance. Why? Because I have given R to the sons of Lot as a possession. Moab was one of the children of Lot through his daughter. That's weird. But they're related. Remember Lot related to Abraham. Now, R, A-R, people are real iffy on where in the world that is, but here's what we know. It's north of Edom, okay? So we're not really for sure. Now, verse 10 gives you a little synopsis, and this is terrible that we're out of time because I'm really digging. We, I was hoping to get much further, but anyway. Uh, verse 10. Everybody got a, is this in parenthesis in your, okay, very interesting. It could have been an editorial comment that somebody made after Moses passed away. It could be that Moses just wanted to include this information in there before he died because he wanted us to get an understanding of what was going on in that region. And what it all is is about beating people up for land. That's essentially what it is. Verse 10, the Emim lived there formerly. Now pause. The Emim were a people group who formerly inhabited Moab. That's where they were. Uh a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. Now, who were the Anakim? Giants. They are big old people. It is the country of Shaquille O'Neal is what it is, right? Like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim, okay? But the Moabites call them Emim. You've got something very important to tack on to to give you a frame of reference when you see these names. If you're like me, you're reading along and you see some of these names, and if you don't have a way to look it up, you go, eh, whatever, and you just move on, kind of wash your hands of it. When we do that, it actually causes a mental break in our comprehension, okay? So it helps us to know what these are. We're talking about all of these people are giants. They're huge, okay? The Emim formerly lived there. They're known as the Rephaim, is what they're known as, but the Moabites called them Emim. Why does he write it like that? Because he is relating to them in terms that that country can understand. This is what you guys call them. This is who they were before you called them that, and they lived in this land, and when Edom was, or I'm sorry, when Moab was given this land to come in and to take it, they threw them out. God gave the Emim over to their hands so that the Moabites could take their land. Uh, it says here, verse 12, the Horites formerly lived in Seir. Where's Seir? Edom. It's Edom right below that. But the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place just as, in the same way, Israel did to the land of their possession, of their inheritance, which the Lord gave to them. And that's what makes us think that this was probably a commentary that was written after this took place because it seems that the people are already in the land and have already conquered a piece of it in order to be able to have this type of editorial comment brought up. Uh, this kills me because we have to stop here because we're out of time.
but verse 13, we'll start. If you would, for next time, we won't be having it next week because of the Thanksgiving holiday, but in two weeks. If you would read chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, there's a lot that happens there. And in th- verse 25 is really when all the fireworks start going off. Uh, it's when everything starts taking a really crazy turn because war starts to happen. And we're going to talk about why war was happening at that moment and not any time before. So any questions or thoughts before we wrap up and pray? Thank you guys for your patience and all that. I really appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. My maps cost me about $1,000. Yeah, I, had to, I got them. I paid for a Bible program to help me study. It's got all the bells and whistles and all the crazies. It even pronounces words for you and, and strange stuff like that. But there's tons of maps. But uh, number one, start by looking in the library. And if, and if you had some questions about it, I'm sure that Mary Cooper would be able to help you and point you in the direction of some maps if we have maps. If we don't, we need to buy some maps. Uh, but there are some good ones. I know that, that Moody, uh, I think it's called the Moody Bible Atlas. If you can find that used on Amazon, always buy used. And the older ones that you can, sometimes the better. Because, because sometimes it seems like the, the, the more recent that you get, the more that they stray away from some of those things. It's like buying a Bible dictionary. If you, can found a, if you can find a conservative scholar who believes in the inerrancy of Scripture and you get a Bible dictionary before 1950, you, you, somewhere in there, you're probably doing really good at finding somebody that has conservative, good, solid information. So much has changed with liberal theology. You know, the Bible's authoritative, but it's not inerrant. Whatever in the world that means, that's, that's an oxymoron contradiction to me. I don't know, it's crazy. Uh, but that would be a good place to start. Always buy used. Look on eBay for Bible maps. You, and sometimes you can go to something like Bible Gateway and find them. And also another program that is helpful for Bible study that is free online is eSword, E-Sword. You can download that for free and it'll download a base package and then you go up in the top little bar there and you can download all this free material, the commentaries, Bible dictionaries, uh, different books that people have written, different translations of the Bible to do word studies. You can you can get all of that stuff on there and it has a good selection of maps so you can look at those. E-Sword, big E-Sword or Sword, however you want to say it. Eastward. So, yeah. Anybody else have a question? Good question. Maps are good. If you're ever dealing with a section like this, don't just pass it over. Try to whip out some maps and find out where people are. It's always very helpful to study. So let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, showing us uh, the the importance uh, of obedience. When you call on us to do something, let us not hesitate, uh, but help us to realize that the best place we can be is running towards Uh, the goal you have before us, Father. So please give us the wisdom and the strength and the ears to listen so that we can respond properly to your truth. We pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, everybody.